1: Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi, Leslie's executive producer. I will be with you for the next two hours. Leslie uh, will be uh, still in New York City. Uh, For those of you who saw her last night on the O'Reilly Factor or today she was guest hosting the uh, show or one of the co-hosts she was guest hosting the show outnumbered on fox news channel and i know she's got some other uh, appearances coming up uh, this week uh, while she's in new york city just follow her on twitter or facebook uh, to find out more about those so in the meantime i am joined by our good friend brad bannon Uh, you can check out brad's website which is bannoncr.com or follow him on twitter that's at brad bannon Uh, Brad is a polling message, Brad, excuse me, runs Banning Communications Research, which is a polling message development and media firm, which helps labor unions, progressive issues, groups, and Democratic candidates win public affairs and political campaigns. Recently, he acquired a new position as a weekly blogger for EpicTimes.com. He uh, formerly wrote for U.S. News and World Report, and he's also a lecturer in political science at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark, how are you today? Uh, You know, better than the Republican Party. I, I, I pretty much can say that safely. Even if I would have gotten hit by a car, I think I could still say that safely.
2: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, almost uh, anybody's doing better than the Republican Party today.
1: So what we're going to do for those, uh, before we get into it too far, uh, for those who haven't gotten to hear some of the speeches by the candidates last night, we're going to play some short clips of them, uh, come back, uh, and then go to Brad and uh, pick his brain. And we'll get your thoughts as well about uh, the Republican race wrapping up uh, with Ted Cruz dropping out last night. John Kasich uh, expected to drop out at 5 o'clock. And this is when it all started last night when Ted Cruz, uh, unexpected to uh, many, even though he lost pretty handily uh, in Indiana, announced that he would be uh, dropping out of the Republican race for president.
0: From the beginning, I've said that I would continue on as long as there was a viable path to victory. Tonight, I'm sorry to say, it appears that path has been foreclosed. Together, we left it all on the field in Indiana. We gave it everything we've got. But the voters chose another path. And so, with a heavy heart, but with boundless optimism for the long-term future of her nation we are suspending our campaign
1: so that was uh ted cruz and then the uh the great uniter of the republican party donald trump just hours uh after basically pulling from a national Enquirer story where he um essentially insinuated that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the JFK assassination. Just hours later, here was Donald Trump trying to uh, talk nicely about Ted Cruz.
3: I have to tell you that I've competed all my life, competitive person. All my life, I've been in competitions, different competitions, whether it's sports or business or now for 10 months politics. And I have to tell you that I have met some of the most incredible competitors that I have ever competed against right here on the Republican Party. You know, we started off with that 17 number. And just so you understand, Ted Cruz, I don't know if he likes me or if he doesn't like me, but he is one hell of a competitor. He is a tough, (laughs) smart guy. And he has got an amazing future. He's got an amazing future. So I want to congratulate Ted. And I know how tough it is. It's tough.
1: And then this was uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton today with Anderson Cooper. Now that uh, Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party, this was uh, Secretary Clinton's reaction. I've seen
4: the presidency up close uh, from two different
1: perspectives, and I think I
4: know what it takes. And I don't think we can take a risk on a loose cannon like Donald Trump running our country. You know, Donald Trump has said it's okay for other countries to get nuclear weapons. Uh, I think that's just downright dangerous. He has said wages are too high. I think we need to have a raise for the American people, uh, raise the minimum wage, get wages back going up. I think when he says women should be punished for having abortions, that is, you know, just beyond anything uh, that I can imagine. I think most women can imagine. He did walk that back. Well, he's a loose cannon. I mean, he's somebody who has said so many things, and I'm sure he'll be scrambling, and his advisors will be scrambling. But he's already said all of these things. He says climate change is a a Chinese hoax, and I think it's real, and we've got to pull the world together to deal with it. So you can go down a long list, some of which he's tried to bob and weave a little bit, but I think it's a risk. I think he is a loose cannon, and loose cannons tend to misfire.
1: And finally, this was Senator Bernie Sanders after his uh, upset victory in Indiana last night.
5: We understand, and I do not deny it for one second, that we have an uphill battle in front of us. Uh, But I think we have a path toward victory, although it is a narrow path. Our goal is twofold. Number one, to win a majority of pledged delegates. Uh, Number two, it is to make sure that in those states where we have won landslide victories, you know, 65, 70% of the votes, that the superdelegates in those states listen to their constituents and vote the way their constituents voted in their states' primaries or caucuses. And thirdly, We are going to make the case to the superdelegates. Many of them, by the way, came on board Hillary Clinton's campaign before I was even an announced candidate. They were there way back when. Well, the world has changed in the last year. And I believe that we will be able to make the case to many of those superdelegates that what is most important... It's not whether Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders is the nominee. What is most important is that we do not allow someone like a Donald Trump to become president of the United States. And I think that according to every poll that I have seen in the last month, Bernie Sanders defeats Donald Trump in the national polls by greater margins than does Hillary Clinton. And Bernie Sanders beats uh, Donald Trump by greater margins than Hillary Clinton in battleground state after battleground state after battleground state. In other words... I think the objective evidence is that I am the strongest candidate to prevent the Trump from becoming president.
1: We're going to talk about that and more with Brad Bannon following this quick commercial break. Those are the four candidates uh, that you heard from. As we said, John Kasich will be speaking at 5 p.m. Eastern, expected uh, to uh, drop out of the race. We want to get your thoughts, and we're going to get the thoughts of Brad Bannon on how the race changed after last night. and. Uh, how you see the general election shaping up. Uh, if you'd like to join us, the number to do so is 888 6 Leslie. That's 888 653 7543. This is Mark Grimaldi along with Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. And we will be right back after this quick commercial break.
0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. 888 6 Leslie.
1: Show This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall, joined by our good friend Brad Bannon. As promised, we're going to get into uh, the weeds here with Brad, if you will. So last night, Brad, Bernie Sanders beat the polling and won Indiana. Uh, what do you think the victory means for the race, and how do you see the Democratic race uh, shaping up?
2: Well, uh, Bernie Sanders did win the race last night, but he won it by such a narrow margin. Uh, he may net two delegates, uh, and he's 600 behind. Uh, so uh, yeah, he has a real tough road ahead of him.
1: So essentially it doesn't really change the trajectory of the race, and I know previously you said you, after the loss in New York you thought it'd be good for Bernie to stay in as long as he softened his tone against Hillary, which he seems to have done. Do you still think that that's the case after last night's news uh, that the, the rest of the Republican nominees dropped out and now we now have Trump as the nominee?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember last Tuesday night when he, when Sanders won, lost four of the five primaries. He said during a speech, uh, I'm going to continue in this race, uh, to secure as many delegates as I can to influence the party platform. And I think that's fine. Uh, I think, uh, as long as, uh, he does Uh, takes it easy on Hillary uh, and doesn't pillory Hillary, uh, we're fine. Uh, He has a perfect right to accumulate as many delegates as he wants and fight for the party platform. And I think by doing that, uh, the party will be better off for it.
1: Now, what do you think, obviously, some, some areas that he's pulled Hillary to the left, which I think many Democrats would argue, myself included, that she needed to be pulled to the left on, like raising the minimum wage. Um, you know, she alluded to the $15 uh, number in one of, the, I think it was the New York debate after being initially hesitant about it. Um, you know, the her debt-free college proposal, very similar to his Uh, free public universities um, and college proposal. Um, Obviously, you know, campaign finance. She's talked more about Citizens United than I think, you know, she has in the past. Um, And there's a number of other areas that I think she was pulled to the left. Obviously, she opposed TPP after initially... You know, seeming that she was going to maybe support it, um, and there's other instances as well. So, what are some things that you think Bernie um, could use these delegates that he's winning to influence the party platform? Uh, in like, what's what are some issues you, bet- between now and then, Brad?
2: Well, I think I can think of a few offhand. Uh, One of which you just mentioned, Uh, I think that uh, Bernie Sanders is going to push for a $15 minimum wage in the party platform. Uh, And as you said, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, has said she favored $12, uh, hinted during New York that she might go to $15. uh, But uh, I think the Sanders people are going to insist it says $15 in the party platform. Uh, So that's one uh i think the second thing the sanders folks will push for is much stricter uh uh restrictions on uh, uh behavior on wall street uh very strict restrictions uh and uh oh and I suspect they're also going to want it to, to be in the party platform uh that they're uh, opposed to trade agreements including including uh the trans pacific partnership so I think what the Sanders people are going to want to do is institutionalize them get them in black and white in the party platform, and uh i I think they have a decent chance of doing that uh because one of the things you have to remember is that uh a lot of Hillary's delegates are very liberal and I suspect uh when they start think you know when they go to the $15 minimum wage uh, or a prohibition against trade agreements you you'll have many uh, Hillary Clinton delegates slide off and and vote for the uh Sanders proposal.
1: Now, how would the party, uh, the party's convention in Philadelphia? I believe it's in July, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, is it July, Brad, or is it June? Uh,
2: starts on July 25th.
1: July 25th. That's why I love Brad. You just do he. I just knew he would know. Um, now, previously, you'd see the
2: Republican starts on uh, July 18th.
1: There you way. go. I remember. It's and there's there, so there's his first this year. Now, uh, speaking of the Democratic side, before we get to the Republican side, um, how will that convention look? I mean, I, I don't recall. If Hillary spoke in the 2008 convention, um, but I know, obviously, you want a unified party. So if Bernie goes to that convention, um, you know, as he has he called that that he would do, and it's not officially, you know, done basically until the superdelegates cast their ballots, how will that break down? I mean, would you expect him to be a speaker there, uh, giving his support for Hillary? Or, I mean, how, how would you think that might break down? Obviously, I'm assuming President Obama will be one of the keynote speakers there, but just, just kind of guesswork at this point.
2: Yeah, well, I, this is what I suspect is going to happen. Uh, I, I think uh, the last primary, California, New Jersey, and a couple of others, I think are on June 7th. Uh, I think starting June 8th, uh, they will, uh, Hillary Clinton will roll out uh, formal endorsements by the superdelegates uh, where they actually come out and say, you know, we're with Hillary, hell or high water. And I suspect by the time the convention starts, if you add together those superdelegates who are now pledged superdelegates, she'll have enough votes for the nomination walking into Philadelphia. Uh, And in that case, or in either case, um, I would fully expect Senator Sanders is going to have a prominent speaking part.
1: That's good. I mean, I I hope that he does. I wouldn't want that to get in the way of it. I think that he's huge and, you know, exciting, a huge portion especially of young voters that are just get first getting involved in you know the process and uh, I would want to obviously hope that they would be involved in that. Now going to the Republican, and anybody's welcome to talk about that or any other issues, we're going to kind of flip back and forth here as we do. So if you'd like to do so again, the number to do so is 8886 Leslie, that's eight 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 You're more than welcome to disagree with Brad and I who both are on record as saying we think Senator Sanders should keep running, that it's good for the party as long as he continues to have a soft tone Uh, Toward Hillary Clinton Um, But again, if you disagree You're more than uh, welcome to uh, call in about that Or any other issue Now, flipping to the Republican side With Ted Cruz dropping out last night And John Kasich today Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee Do you think Cruz will endorse Trump, Brad?
2: Well, I think eventually Probably he probably will. But it's not it's going to take a while. Uh, Remember uh, in that clip you played, Donald Trump says he doesn't know whether Ted Cruz likes him or dislikes him. I have the answer to that question. (laughs) Yesterday, Ted Cruz called Trump a pathological liar. Uh, So my guess is that means he dislikes Donald Trump. Uh, And it's going to take a while for Cruz to get over this. I mean, Trump savaged the other candidates. Uh, He called uh, Cruz uh, Lion Ted. Uh, He had, you know, derogative names for all the candidates. Uh, and I suspect most of them will eventually sign on, uh, but it's gonna be a while and especially with Cruz because Cruz is very angry. So that's gonna be a while. Uh, by the way, in the, uh, Cruz clip you played, uh, he said, uh, Cruz said we had decided to suspend our campaign. Um, the we that he referred to are the three people who voted for him in the last month.
1: Yeah, I seriously. I mean, he – I really thought, Brad – I mean, there's about a minute left and we'll get – We'll get to Kasich, but I, I honestly was expecting a contested convention, and then after New York, it really seemed to to change things by the wide margins that that Trump was winning at. So we'll talk about that after the break. If you'd like to join in with uh, myself, Mark Raimondi, and Brad Bannon, you're welcome to do so at eight 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 six Leslie. That's eight 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 six five three seven five four three. Do you think Ted Cruz will endorse Donald Trump, and if so, how long do you think that's going to take? Because initially they seemed very buddy buddy, but then as Brad alluded to, they really went after each other hard. Um, in addition to calling uh, Trump a pathological liar yesterday, Cruz, um, when he heard about Trump calling, uh, insinuating that his father was uh, involved in the JFK assassination, Trump, that is, saying that about Cruz's father, Cruz called uh, Trump also a serial philanderer. Talked about a quote from the Howard Stern show years ago where Trump said his battle with venereal disease was his own Vietnam. Some really dark stuff from Trump's past. So if you'd like to get in, 8886 Leslie. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall, joined by our good friend Brad Bannon. Brad runs Bannon Communications Research. You can find out more about Brad at his website, BannonCR.com, or follow him on Twitter at Brad Bannon. Uh, as promised, we'll be taking your calls throughout uh, the rest of the show. We're talking about both sides uh, of the aisle. Um, one issue that we had referred to uh, previously was the battle for a $12 or $15 minimum wage proposal in the platform uh, for the Democrats uh, at their convention uh, in July, at the end of July in Philadelphia. And we do have a caller on that. And her name is Kate in Albuquerque, and she wanted to comment on that. Kate, welcome to the show, and go ahead with your thoughts. Sure. One of my thoughts
6: is you you have to look at the part of the country when you decide the minimum wage. $15 an hour, great in New York City, great in San Francisco. But I live in New Mexico, which is a very impoverished economy. Most of the people here who are running small businesses, and about 80% of the businesses here are under 20 employees. They're running these businesses because frankly there's no bigger employees to give them jobs. It's it's the only thing they can do. And I would bet that a lot of the owners, given the hours they work, don't even make fifteen dollars an hour. So a good majority of these people just plain will go out of business because the economy will not support it. So I think a blanket fifteen dollars an hour without any recognition to different parts of the country is it's a great slogan, but it doesn't make sense. It just does not make sense.
1: I think you bring up some interesting points about the diversity of the country. If you look at the cities that are doing it so far, you have Cal- well, states and cities. First you had, uh, I think it was Seattle, then San Francisco. Now you have the states of California and New York. But even the way they're doing it, each state and city is different. The way that they're rolling it out, um, is it's being gradually built up uh, over years, number one. And number two... There are exemptions uh, in some of them for different communities, different size businesses, and also how long it takes to roll it out for the size of the business. So I think you're right. And I think that's why the way that it's been done uh, in some of these instances, I believe California uh, did a good job with their proposal. So did uh, New York. So I think you're right. If they're not careful about it, not only is it going to um, hurt those businesses, but I think it'll hurt the argument, um, which you know, this raising the, the wage would really lift up a lot of people. I think that's one thing where the other the other part of the argument doesn't get brought in is the way that it stimulates the economy. These people who are making, you know, under that amount, a lot of people right now, if they're making, I mean, the federal minimum wage is seven twenty five. That's a That's a joke, mm-hmm. regardless of where you are on this debate. You can't even support a family. And the people who say that, oh, the minimum wage isn't meant to support a family, well, if you look at the percentage of people who work, for the minimum wage, now that's what's what's happened in a lot of parts of the country is they're forced to, um, and the government ends up having to spend money uh, supporting them through uh, things like food stamp, uh, food stamps, heat heat assistance, uh, and that comes out of the pa- the pockets of taxpayers. So there's a lot of different benefits to raising it, but I think Kate brings up a good point, Brad, which is you have to do it carefully and you have to craft it in a way that takes into account the you know various eco- economies in not only different states but different cities. Throughout the United States, so how do you see that being applied in a thoughtful way that that could work uh, for the country, Brad? If there is a way, in your opinion,
2: well, like you said, Mark, in New York and California, uh, they didn't—they're not raising the minimum wage uh, in a day to fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, it's going to happen over a period of a few years. Uh, one other argument that's very important to remember, if. You raise the federal minimum wage, you're going to save the federal government probably hundreds of millions of dollars uh because when they debated this in congress last year the nonpartisan congressional budget office which is the research on congress did a study uh and they said uh they, they studied the president's proposal which was $10 and 10 cents an hour uh the CBO said that if we did that uh the federal government would save hundreds of millions of dollars uh because with that pay increase uh thousands of Americans would not be eligible for federal benefits anymore, like Medicaid or food stamps and a lot of other programs. Uh, so essentially, uh, the CBO report said uh, that if we did this, um, people uh, would essentially, millions of people would rise above the poverty level and no longer be eligible for government assistance, which would save the federal government hundreds of millions of dollars.
1: And Kate, to your point about the small businesses, I'll give you an example. So New York State's proposal um this is specifically they denote new york city and then they d- denote the rest of the state which you know a lot of i actually live in um upstate new york so some of those areas could be somewhat comparable um in a way to what you're talking about for these smaller businesses outside of major cities just to give you an example in new york city this is the way they roll out to fifteen dollars so on december 31st it's going to go up to ten fifty. then on uh, December thirty. I'm sorry, December thirty first of two thousand sixteen. It looks like it goes to twelve dollars. Then December thirty first of two thousand seventeen. So basically, the end of not this year but the following year, it goes to thirteen fifty. And then at the end of twenty eighteen, the very last day of the year is when it goes to fifteen dollars. That's just for New York City. Now, if you look yeah. at the rest of the state. You've got the end of this year, it goes to ten seventy five the end of next year, two thousand seventeen eleven seventy five and they roll it out a dollar at the end of each year until it doesn't actually go to fifteen dollars an hour. Until July of 2021, so five years from now. And then there's also exemptions. Now, that's just one example where I think they're crafting it in a way where they're not going to expect these small businesses to be on the same level of a New York City with a large corporation, which just wouldn't make any sense. So I think that's the way that it has to be done because otherwise, you're right, it's going to put these small business owners out of business and regardless of whether or not i'm sure many of them would like to pay their employees more but it has to be done in a way that is friendly to small businesses that will actually help them gain customers because a lot of these people in the communities who are going to be getting the raise in wages would be then spending it um, on a lot of these, you know, communities, especially if it's a smaller community, and that's where a lot of people buy, you know, their groceries, their clothes, their cars, um, rent apartments, buy houses, things like that. But if it's not done in a way that you bring up, Kate, I think it could uh, have very dire consequences, which no one wants. Who's proposing this? I don't think so. Um, I just wanted to give you a chance to, to respond well, to the, that. I,
6: I, I'm, yeah, no, I'm glad you're willing to have this dialogue. And uh, again, I look at New Mexico I was originally from new york so i understand the, the the economics of new york but you've got a state that as i say to my friends back east is about the population of queens but spread out over a lot bigger space and there's a real you know poor economic uh educational system and there's really it's like a second world country in terms of economic growth here and you know, so, you know, one of the things you have to look at on a state by state basis is how to really stimulate growth in states that are much more impoverished than other states and don't have that education base and don't have that economic base because you're going to like come to a point where you just can't make it any better. And I think that needs to be part of the picture. I just, again, I look at stuff and I, I, I'm, I'm old enough now to know that you know, answers to political problems aren't slogans. They're way, way more complex and people have to do the hard work. And I guess would love to have the discussion a little bit more nuanced and complex so that we come up with genuine solutions. And so people aren't pissed off when the, the 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 easy answers don't happen because they're not easy.
1: No, I think you're right, and I think that's a good point. If you look at the way that the conversation started and where it started on the ground um, with a lot of the fast food workers in places like you you mentioned, like New York City, I think the idea that it's going to other parts of the country is important the way that it's talked about and the way that it's done and how long it takes to roll it out. And also, um, basically, you, know, you have to have certain exemptions and you have to have, I think, businesses that have incentives to do this. So whether it means, for instance, taking that That savings that Brad brings up that the federal government will have and using that for, let's just say, small business tax credits. I mean, that would be a Mm -hmm. great idea because then you're giving basically taking the money out that, you know, not all of it, obviously, but that's spent on assistance like that. And you're growing the economy, and that money is then going into the pockets of small business owners. And you know, a dollar that goes into a local economy and that gets spent—I I forget what the numbers are—but it gets exponentially higher um, the way that that it's spent. Uh, in just if you look at it through basic economics. And the other thing is, you said you know you've been looking at this for a while. One of the major problems is. You know, we have all these corporate tax breaks throughout the United States and, you know, many people have a problem with that. But our government seems to just, you know, Congress, obviously, with the gridlock there, seems to let these things keep happening. Yet, if you look at the minimum wage with inflation and compare it to, you know, what the value of the dollar is back to like the Mm -hmm. 50s, 60s and 70s, I mean, it's absolutely disgusting that you, you can't possibly even come close to living on this. So whether it's. $15 fifteen dollars or twelve dollars or ten dollars I think we have to have a big broad economic argument as the Democratic Party uh, otherwise I think people are going to turn to someone like Trump who's just gonna have these because he'll say anything I mean he'll he obviously yeah. has been against raising the minimum wage but he'll talk about you know giving them money some other way I mean you you name it he'll say it I think we have to have specifics but we also have to have a big bold plan that's going to make a difference in people's lives and I, I that's where one that I would say yes I agree you can't have the answer to a, a complicated political slogan uh, excuse me problem with a slogan but I think it's a big broad idea that's gaining traction throughout America and if you look at the polling people want to make it happen now you're right we have to have skilled you know uh, leaders in this country who will find a way to make it happen which will not only not hurt those small businesses, but give them an incentive to want to be a part of this and help those small businesses. So I think you make a very good point, Kate, and uh, I want to thank you for calling in today. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Absolutely. Call back anytime. Brad, we're going to take a break, and uh, if you'd like to join in with uh, myself, Mark Rimaldi, and Brad Bannon, you're welcome to do so at 888 6 That's 888-653-7543. Uh, we will be coming back. Actually, Brad, uh, yeah, we'll be coming right back, and then we're going to go to Talk Media News at uh, 4... Fifty-four. So in about ten minutes. So we'll have a little bit of time left with Brad, and then uh, we're going to go to Talk Media News, and then he's going to rejoin us again. This is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break.
0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Eight 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 six Leslie.
1: Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall, joined by our good friend Brad Bannon. So, Brad, we talked about that you think Ted Cruz will eventually uh, endorse... Probably, I think you said, will eventually endorse uh, Donald Trump. What about John Kasich? I, I read that he's not expected to do any endorsement today at 5. I mean, you never know until the speech actually happens. But do you think he will eventually endorse Trump? If you remember, he initially made the pledge along with Cruz to support whoever the Republican nominee is, but then reneged on that uh, in a CNN town hall last month. So what do you think will happen as far as Kasich and the endorsement uh, of Trump?
2: Uh, well, uh Uh, Cruz is an easy one, because uh, Cruz can, after he uh, calms down, after they both calm down, uh, Trump is a relatively easy sale in Texas. Uh, Kasich, however, if, you know, let's face it, it, the chances are that Donald Trump is going to get killed in Ohio, uh, and Kasich has to worry about the political impact on him. You know, this has put... Republicans across the country in a very difficult situation. Uh, Kelly Ayotte, who is the Republican senator from New Hampshire, uh, running for re-election this year, uh, she is scared to death of running on the same ticket with Trump. She issued a statement today that said she would support but not endorse Donald Trump. Now, what the hell does that mean?
1: Yeah, exactly, Brad. Um, you know, I think you also have an interesting one last night. It was uh, I was watching CNN and um they mentioned that they said that John McCain after the POW stuff, it was weird to see him come out and endorse Donald Trump. And uh someone noted that um you know, while he's going to be he's up for election and they're going to be tied to the, to the ticket, essentially, because when you go to vote in Arizona, you're going to see for president, the Republican would be Donald, Donald Trump in that uh, district uh, for senator. It would be John McCain. Well, within about two minutes, Dana Basher, someone comes back on and goes, we just got a call from the McCain campaign and they wanted us to uh, to be to clarify that. John McCain is not endorsing Donald Trump. John McCain said he would endorse or support the eventual GOP nominee. And then she goes, talk about trying to thread the needle. And that just, to me, embodied what Republicans are going to try to do in a lot of districts this year where they want people to come out and vote, but they don't want to tie themselves to Trump because they think he'll be toxic for the rest of the ticket. Well, yeah, I
2: mean, McCain's a good example of that. There's a large Latino population uh, in Arizona. Uh, Latinos if the national polls, are any indications, hate Donald Trump. Uh, and McCain uh, will get caught in the backfire. Uh, so he has to be really careful because uh, the Latino turnout in Arizona and other places is going to go through the roof in November. Um, and that could very easily uh, bring John McCain down.
1: Brad, so so. if you had to guess, Kasich, will he endorse Donald Trump before the election, yes or no?
2: Uh, yes, but it will be a tempted endorsement. Uh, and uh, when Trump comes to Ohio, uh, you, uh, Governor Kasich will have a convenient excuse to be on the other side of the state.
1: Yeah, I, I think that could very well happen. Brad, uh, we're going to go to our Talk Media News service, but we're going to be rejoined by Brad at the top of next hour. In the meantime, we go to our good friend, Talk Media News reporter, Bob Nay. Bob, how are you doing today?
0: Good. We are watching Ohio as you and I speak.
1: Well, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting day. I, I didn't expect... Uh, uh, Ted Cruz to drop out last night I thought he would keep going um, I'm not, I wasn't completely surprised I, I, after the loss that uh, Trump handed to him but um, I think you could, you could hear the audible reactions uh, of his supporters that a lot of other people were quite surprised they thought that he would continue fighting on uh, to a contested convention Bob, uh, for most of our audience who uh, have heard you be part of the Leslie Marshall Show family for a while with Talk Media News, they know that you're a, a former Republican congressman. What do you make of all this, Bob. I mean, give us your perspective on on, uh, the happenings in the GOP and the fact that Donald Trump is now the top of the ticket.
0: Sure. I mean, you know, I served in the county with John Kasich. He's the last to go here. I knew he would go. I, I didn't expect Cruz to go so fast. But basically what happened, in my opinion anyway, is behind the scenes, Karl Rove and that crew, as I'll, as I'll call them, got together. They pushed Jeb Bush. Everything was wrapped up. Jeb had a $100 million. He politically sucked the air out of the entire room. And along came Donald Trump. And so I argue that Jeb Bush helped create Donald Trump because Bush kept everybody down. Bush was spending money to attack Marco Rubio, John Kasich, whoever he was attacking, as if he was going to get somewhere. And he was a doomed candidate. Trump comes in with his bombastic style, and Bush stayed in just long enough, I think, to basically screw everybody else out of the ability to, you know, narrow that that race down. So I I blame a lot on what I would call the establishment Republicans, but yet look, the conservatives don't want Donald Trump. Uh some are coming around to say yes they will. And then some will play a game like McCain and some other senators who are going to fall into that trap of not localizing their elections. So I think the Republican party's in a semi-nervous breakdown. It was happening, it's been coming for a long time. But I still blame a lot of this on Jeb Bush and Karl Rove and that crew who just, you know, had to try to manipulate one more election. And it caused uh, Jeb Bush to keep a lot of people down until it was too late.
1: Bob, you know, you seeing a Republican like Donald Trump or even just seeing Donald Trump and, and the things that he said in 2016 about so many different demographics, you know, I, I have a daughter who's one and a half, so she's barely speaking enough mm-hmm. for me to even communicate anything like that to her. But I can imagine, you know, if I had a a, a child who was maybe 10 or 11 or 12 mm-hmm. and hearing different instances of schools who are, who are having sporting contests and Latino athletes being, um, you know, jeered at and people chanting Trump and, and in school, some kids being told that they're going to be deported once Trump is president. I mean, I look at it differently now that I'm a parent, and I, it it just shames me that even though I'm on the other side of this, that that our country has come to nominating someone like this, who's one step away from president. And I know there's there's many different factors of how it happened, but just part of me was just just saddened by this, and I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, it's like
0: somebody took a shotgun all at once and just fired it, to, you know, across the country, in the sense that a collision of so many things. Uh, Trump comes onto the scene, uh, you know, bombastic, right? frankly, after this Kennedy assassination statement yesterday, and he still won. I mean, I, you know that old thing where he said he could shoot somebody? Yeah. That might very well be true. So, you know, you have the most outlandish statements that never normally would have lasted over two days in American politics. Then you have this fear factor of people afraid, you know, and and, uh, killings and a lot of shootings here in America, period. And there's a whole fear factor across the country. So now we're not really red state, blue state, I don't think, as much as we're almost like culturally now at war with each other. Almost like a
1: culture war. You know, I think that there is a great opportunity in this election, though, to bring people together, just like there are in many elections. And and I think, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of divisiveness, too. But um, I just want to thank you for your uh, point of view here, Bob. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to uh, having you share those thoughts on the show uh, going forward. Thank you so much. All right. You take care. Thanks. All right, that was Bob Nay with Talk Media News. You can find more if you go to uh, talkmedianews.com. Bob, again, uh, has been a uh, congressional representative for Republicans, so you can find more of his work there. Uh, This is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. We will be right back with Brad Bannon after this uh, top-of-the-hour news break.
0: The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people.
1: Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Ramaldi, Leslie's executive producer in for Leslie for the next hour. And as we were last hour, we're joined by a good friend of the show, Brad Bannon, who runs Bannon Communications Research, which is a polling message development and media firm that helps labor unions, progressive issue groups. And Democratic candidates win public affairs and political campaigns. He's also a lecturer in political science at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts, and he blogs weekly for epictimes.com. You can find his website, which is uh, BannonCR.com. Uh, get him on Twitter at Brad Bannon. Brad, welcome back to the show.
2: Hey, I'm ready to go again.
1: All right, brother. so uh, I wanted to get a little bit more into uh, what we were discussing last hour. Um, you know many Democrats were hoping for a contested convention to quote unquote bloody the eventual Republican nominee, and now that's not happening. Um, does that change the race uh you know going into November, and if so, how, in your opinion
2: well i think it uh, I think it helps. Uh, I think it helps the Republicans that they're not going to have uh, a nasty fight over the nomination in Cleveland uh, and better to get these things worked out now uh, than to get worked out in July when you're a lot closer to the election. So I think it is an advantage. Uh, They've got this thing settled.
1: Damn it. That's what I thought, too. But, you know, I had to ask Brad just to make sure. I still think they have a lot of problems, but that's one of the reasons I was rooting for it as a a progressive Democrat. Well, they do.
2: They do have a lot of
1: problems. They do. I mean, that's the thing. They have a lot more unifying that they have to do as opposed to uh, the Democrats. And talking about um, the the convention that the Republicans are going to have, uh, I think you said it's July 18th that starts, Brad. Is that right?
2: Right. And, you know, one thing interesting about the Republican convention, uh, last week, uh, the chairman of the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee uh, advised Republican House candidates not to go to Cleveland. uh, And the he did that for a very simple reason. Uh, there, He is scared to death, as many Republicans in Washington, that not only is Trump going to lose, but he's going to take down a lot of Republican congressional candidates with him. So basically, Cleveland's a toxic area zone, even for Republicans.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, the other thing is, Brad, speaking of the convention in uh, July Uh, What party leaders of the Republican Party do you think will not go to the Republican convention of the major party leaders? I think obviously you're not going to see, you know, either uh, Bush there. You know, none of the Bushes, obviously, W. George H. W. won't be there. Um, I don't obviously Mitt Romney won't be there. um, And I don't think any of them will be supporting Trump or, like I said, at the convention. So that's I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, how many people don't show up there.
2: Oh, yeah i think you're gonna have um i think you're gonna have a lot of key republicans uh, not in Cleveland unless they are there to demonstrate of course uh yeah i think and you know again uh i think uh there are several republicans uh involved in key uh senate House races, uh, and that won't want to be seen in Cleveland. Uh, One of them is uh, the incumbent Republican senator in Ohio, uh, who's in a very tough race before uh, against uh, former Governor Ted Spricklin. The convention's in his state, and my guess is he won't even show up. Um, The same thing may be true of uh, uh, John McCain, who's in a very tight race with a large Latino vote. Uh, Kelly Ayotte, who we talked about before, uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, Pat Toomey, a conservative Republican, is in a very tough race in Pennsylvania. My guess is he doesn't show up in Cleveland either. Uh, So Cleveland will be noted for its absences, uh, not the people who show up.
1: And I think you will see a lot of protests. Um, You know, I talked about my experience uh, protesting at a Trump rally and getting ejected. But I think you're going to see conservatives there uh, protesting, too. I really wouldn't be surprised if you remember Trump did not go to CPAC because the organizer, one of the original organizers of part of it, said that they were planning a huge um movement there where once Trump took the stage they all were going to turn their back in unison and make a huge spectacle of the fact that they don't support Trump so I wouldn't be surprised if you have a big chunk of Republicans there trying to make some sort of demonstration inside the convention I'm sure that Reince Priebus and other Republicans will try to prevent that but there's only so much they are going to be able to do especially when there's going to be not a lot of other Republicans showing up there um, like you mentioned um, speaking of Trump I've I've heard today that they're talking about vetting VP candidates. He says he wants to go to the political route. There's going to be plenty of people, I think, that, you know, someone brought it up on CNN last night that usually when you're asked to be a vice presidential candidate, you don't say no. But I think you could have some people saying uh, thanks but no thanks to Trump.
2: Well, yeah, I think that's going to be a problem for Trump. Um, I think there are many Republicans uh, who don't want to be uh, caught in the same city block as Donald Trump, uh, much less run on a ticket as vice president with him. Yeah, and I think he's going to probably have to scrape towards the bottom of the barrel uh, because I doubt um, you know there are many Republicans who want to make the race, mainly because um, they fear that this is the Republicans, not me saying this, Most Republicans think that Donald Trump is going to get killed in November, and they don't want to be near him when his body falls, Uh, and you know, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up going to someone like Ben Carson, who said he he would uh, be on Trump's ticket, as asked, because I don't think he's going to get anyone uh, uh, prominent. Uh, you know, if I was Trump and I was looking at a VP, I'd go to, I'd look at John Kasich um, or Marco Rubio, uh, because they both uh, are from key uh, states with lots of electoral votes. But the reality is, I doubt either of them would want to be on the ticket.
1: That's one... I, he wants to go the political route. That's one that would... Um, I think give me some pause as a Democrat I would not like to see him pick Kasich Because Kasich's moderate, he's very popular in Ohio That said, Trump would still be at the top of the ticket um, That people would have to vote for But I also agree with you I, I'm not sure Kasich would really want anything to do with uh, You know, ha- being a VP choice for Trump I would be less surprised if he did What you said, which would be like a tepid endorsement of him And When Trump goes to Ohio He's mysteriously not there that day I think you put that well, Brad So that'll be interesting to see um, Also, uh, last night Michael Smirkanish, who is a CNN um, political analyst, made the point uh, after uh, Trump, or excuse me, Cruz dropped out, uh, talking about Trump, what he faces in the general election. To your point, Brad, uh, 59% of the white vote got George H.W. Bush 426 electoral votes in 1988. But that same 59% of the white vote captured by Mitt Romney in 2012 only got him 206 electoral votes. So to quote Smirkanish, Donald Trump has to widen the tent if he's going to win in November, but how can he do that when he's insulting so many different demographics?
2: Well, yeah, I think that's actually one of the amazing things is that the last two uh, Republican uh, candidates, uh, Mitt Romney uh, and uh, John McCain, both clobbered, uh, Barack Obama with white voters. Uh, They got like, you know, 50, you know, I think both cases, 59 or 60 percent of the vote. And despite doing so well with white voters, they lost. Uh, America's changing. And you can see it if you look at 2008 um, to 2012. Uh, I think in uh, – oh, no, I know because I just looked at the exit polls. Uh, in uh, 2012, uh, 22 uh, – no, 24 percent of the voters were not white. And they voted overwhelmingly for Barack Obama, Uh, Asians, uh, Latinos, blacks. uh, They were 24 percent of the vote, and that overweighed the support that uh, Mitt Romney had with white voters. And going back to 2008, I think the non-white vote was 21%. So it went up 3%. And I'm willing to bet serious money um, the contribution of the minority community to the presidential vote this November uh, will be on the order of 26 or 27%. And the reality is uh, Trump is going to Take a massive hit among non white voters. Uh, and, you know, the reality is there just aren't enough white voters to go around uh, anymore for a Republican to win the presidency just with white support.
1: It's a great point, Brad, especially, I, I think, if you look at, you know, the rate that President Obama won Latino uh, voters in 2008 and 2012 against candidates like McCain and Romney. And then you have someone, you know, they have their own problems, but nothing uh, near the rhetoric of what Donald Trump uh, has said when he first announced his run. That was the day when he said Mexico isn't sending us our best and brightest. They're sending murderers and rapists. Um, I mean, he's made it very clear, his, his policy about the wall, which, by the way, Brad, I don't know if you ever get a chance to watch. Um, it's called Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He did an absolutely fantastic job just uh, tearing apart the idea of Donald Trump building this wall and the budget estimates that Trump has given. You could find it on YouTube for our listeners. An absolute excellent job. He actually got real estimates from construction companies on how much it would cost to build things like this. And even if it was effective, he talked about how George Bush, uh, George W. Bush tried to uh, build parts of the fence around the border and the adverse effects it has had um, in different areas. Just absolute fascinating, uh, absolute fascinating job. So I think Trump has plenty of problems with um, non-white voters. As you bring up, speaking of polling Brad, um, there were two recent polls of note that came out. uh, One today from CNN ORC which was more favorable to both Clinton and Sanders over Trump, but the one before that from Rasmussen, which I think you have pointed out, Brad, is more of a right-leaning polling group, but still people seem to pay attention to it. The first poll I've seen head-to-head where Trump actually leads Clinton Uh, It was released this week and had Trump ahead of Clinton 41- 39 percent it also had some weird wording in there i think about like if you were going to stay home or vote one of these candidates or something like that um also people will know mathematically 41 to 39 does not add up to 100 percent. so a lot of people staying on the sidelines in that poll what do you make of that uh, particular rasmussen poll? well
2: first of all uh rasmussen is a long time uh republican campaign operative uh so I would view uh, any polling that he releases uh, with a several grains of salt. Uh, because it looks to me, uh, if you look at two other national polls that came out last week, uh, they both had Hillary Clinton up by seven points uh, over uh, Trump. And uh, today, as you said, the new CNN poll came out, and they had uh, Hillary Clinton up in double digits. Yeah, she was uh, up by 13, and,
1: uh, Brad, 13. By 13.
2: So, yeah, I, I think you have to take the Rasmussen poll with a grain of thought uh, because he's a Republican campaign operative.
1: Very good point, Brad. We're going to go to break. If anyone would like to join in, in that conversation, talking about the matchups between uh, Trump and Clinton or Trump and Sanders, as we'll get to uh, some of those polls uh, coming into the break here, you're welcome to do so. Uh, we've got a couple lines open if you'd like to join with Brad Bannon, uh, our Democratic strategist and uh, guest host of the show today, along with myself, Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer. You can do so at eight 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 six leslie That's 8-653-7543. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break.
0: Leslie Marshall, straight and on point. 888 6 Leslie.
1: Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi in with Brad Bannon. We have some calls we're going to get to. We do have uh, two lines left open, so if you'd like to get in, uh, I would try to do so now. Uh, If you get in now, we can pretty much uh, guarantee that uh, we'll be able to get you on before the end of the show, uh, but uh, in a couple of minutes probably won 't be able to do that if you want to do so that 's eight 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 six leslie eight 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 six five three seven five four three if you 'd like to join Brad Bannon or myself uh, Mark Grimaldi Brad, I wanted to go to uh, a caller um, Bobby uh, who 's in Albuquerque and wanted to rebut uh, an earlier call a bit uh Kate. Um, from Albuquerque, who wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the minimum wage, and he also is in uh, Albuquerque. Bobby, uh, welcome to the show.
7: Thank you. Thank you for taking my call.
1: Absolutely. So go ahead with your thoughts.
7: Um, Well, I I just wanted to point out uh, the the lady, I think you said her name was Kate. Kate, yes. Uh, She uh, claimed to be from New Mexico and then did a broad brush, assessment of New Mexico as some type of third-world country. She seems very articulate and knowledgeable regarding wages, business, and economics, and all of those matters. But the argument she put forth was an argument she put forth against the minimum, not her, but people put forth against the minimum wage increase in Santa Fe, New Mexico as a state—I'm from New Mexico, really from New Mexico, born and raised—as a state is as diverse economically as the entire country. We have very, very expensive communities, some of the highest uh, economies in the—highest priced economies in the nation, and we have some of the poorest communities. So we're all over the place as far as that goes. But the problem— And the argument, she says, is created was deemed invalid through the experiment in Santa Fe. I was uh, a member of ASCME, and I lobbied the legislature to bring back collective bargaining in New Mexico. I also got involved with initiating one of the nation's first living wage acts as a community, which is Santa Fe. And that particular process... They phased in the increases, they had exemptions for small businesses that could not afford those type of uh, increases, and it worked perfectly. And Santa Fe has one of the most uh, robust economies in the state.
1: So essentially, so if it's they a- want
7: to use Santa Fe as a model, that would be probably one of the best examples they could use for bringing that same process forward across the nation.
1: That's a really good point, and and I appreciate you bringing it up, you know, especially because it's right there in New Mexico. Um, You know, another thing that I think some people talk about, for instance, Pew Pew Research um, talks about adjusted for inflation, the uh, minimum wage peaked, in 1968, at what would be 854 in 2014 dollars, and since it was last raised in 2009 to the current 725, um, it's lost about eight percent of its purchasing power due to inflation. Uh, and the Economist recently estimated that, given how much um, how rich the United States is, and the pattern uh, among other advanced economies, uh, in Uh, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, one would expect that America would be paying a minimum wage closer to $12 an hour. So, I mean, if you look at our economy, it it bears out that it would support that, especially if you talk about how it would stimulate uh, the economy. We've got about 30 seconds till break, so I just wanted to give you the final word uh, here, Bobby.
7: Right on. Um, Yeah, I think uh, uh, – There's just always been that argument, and people just accept it at face value, that it's going to ruin all the businesses and they won't be able to keep people employed. Um, That's always an excuse um, for the health plans and stuff, the the Obamacare, to have exemptions for uh, so-called small businesses, and they include franchises. I think McDonald's should be paying for this insurance as a fully established business.
1: I couldn't agree more with you Bobby thanks for your call sorry we're out of time there we've got a couple lines open if you'd like to join myself Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon the number to do so is 8886 Leslie that's 8886537543 we'll be right back <laughs> Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Ramaldi in for Leslie Marshall. We're joined by Brad Bannon. Uh, John Kasich has officially dropped out of the uh, presidential race. Here is a snippet of his speech.
5: Throughout my campaign, I have said the Lord may have another purpose for me. And it set all the pundits of Twitter. Does that mean he's not committed or, or he's not focused or he's not energetic? It showed to some degree how little they understand about life. You see, I have always said that the Lord has a purpose for me as he has for everyone. And as I suspend my campaign today, I have renewed faith, deeper faith, that the Lord will show me the way forward and fulfill the purpose of my life. Thank you, and God bless.
1: So that was John Kasich. A little bit of his speech. Uh, Trump, I guess, has told Wolf Blitzer he thinks... Kasich will be very, very helpful. In Ohio, that remains to be seen. Uh, Brad, a very knowledgeable political strategist, has made an assessment that I think could make sense where you might see a a tepid, I think is the word Brad used, or soft endorsement of uh, Trump by Kasich, but not wanting to tie himself to to Trump too much uh, because it would potentially um, make his own political future uh, vulnerable. Uh, We do have some more calls we're going to get to, um, but I want to talk a little bit about, uh, well, let's go back. First, we've got um, Manny uh, in Massachusetts. He wants to talk a a little bit about the uh, minimum wage. Manny, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I just want to put in my two cents about this minimum wage thing. Um, It it seems to me that the people who are advocating to do the trickle-down economics Mm -hmm. to give the rich and the powerful and the corporations more money Mm -hmm. are the same exact people who are saying that we can't do do it in the opposite way. Yeah, when we gave corporations and raised people more money, they said, "The economy's not doing good. People don't have enough money to buy our products, so we're just going to stash our money." You know, so
0: it seems to me like they're being a little bit hypocritical. It trickle down didn't work. We know
2: that trickle trickle up might have a good chance of
0: working. Yeah, to work
1: it. bottom up exactly. And you're right when when they did get the tax breaks, if you look, um, they basically just kept their balance sheets flush with cash and did not spend that capital and you see people who already have, you know, inordinate amounts of money, they are not spending that money when they get it. They're hoarding it whereas if you give your typical, you know, working class American, especially someone who's making the minimum wage, what do they do if they get a raise? Well, they go out and do things like buy a new car or buy, you know, Products in their community, or maybe put a down payment on, on buying their first home. These are things that stimulate the economy and stimulate the local economy where the minimum uh, wage would be raised. So I think your point is well taken, and it's dead on, Manny. So thanks for calling, and I appreciate it. You're welcome. So, Brad, um, one other thing that uh, I wanted to bring up uh, with you is. Essentially, how Trump um, is able to just kind of not hide his past, but it didn't seem to matter with a lot of Republican primary voters. And one issue where I think we're going to see this come up is the Iraq War, because that's one thing Trump attacked uh, Jeb Bush on was the fact that his brother... Um, led that fight, obviously, and, you know, lied about weapons of mass destruction. He's tried to uh, tie Hillary to that vote, and I think he's going to try to appeal to some uh, voters of Senator Sanders on that issue. But I think it's, it's a really interesting point that was brought up on Morning Joe today by uh, Huffington Post's uh, Sam Stein about how Trump is— completely telling a lie when he says he was against the Iraq war from the start. Uh, We're going to play this clip, uh, which is against Sam Stein from the Huffington post today on morning, Joe talking about that instance, how Trump has basically gotten away with that lie so far in the media.
8: Back up a little bit about what you're talking about, the contradictions in Donald Trump. I think it's not just contradictions that befuddled his opponents and sort of bemused and frustrated his critics. It's that he was sort of appearing in an unreality. For instance, during the interview that he did just with you guys, he spoke about his opposition to the Iraq War, when demonstrably we know that that's not true, that in 2002 he was supportive of the Iraq War. And no one ever figured out how to properly call him out for that unreality, he well, you know, Sam Stein, the, great strength, I mean, and it was Sam Stein, a you're right. The
3: but there are yeah. inconsistencies. But he also said the week that the war started, and I've I've said this time and again, yeah. he said the week the war started that it was going to yeah. be a mess. I mean, he certainly said that ahead of Hillary Clinton and said well, that certainly had of Hillary Clinton said sure, said of that. He was ahead
8: of every other Republican he was running against. Did he? Yes, that's true, too. But he was on on Howard Stern's show, asked about the war and said, yeah, I guess I support it. Now, he goes around and says he's been so he's been against it from the beginning. That's just a flat out lie. And that's an unreality. And no one has ever figured out how to actually hold him accountable for that, whether it's in the media or whether it's his Republican opponents. And I think, you know, that's a credit to Trump. I will say when that Buzzfeed clip came out about Howard Stern, he was confronted with that that morning. On this show, on another show, I was on that same day and asked about it. He, you know, he gives a roundabout answer,
1: and it turns out the voters did not care. Brad, very interesting points there, uh, you know, perfect example of how Trump tries to kind of erase his past and just comes out and says something where uh, not a lot of people knew until that clip was unearthed that Trump was lying about, uh, you know, having opposition to the Iraq war from the start. Why do you think this has not gotten more attention and how do you think that issue is going to play out uh, in November between him and uh, if it is Hillary Clinton, uh, Hillary?
2: Uh, it will be devastating to Trump in November. Republican primary voters just don't care. Um, they like Trump. Uh, they they identify with his angry rhetoric, uh, his racist rants. Uh, but that's not going to happen. Uh, when you get to independents and Democrats, uh, it's going. You know, I mean, remember here, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, but. If you look at any poll, national poll right now, his negative rating is in the high 60s. Uh, So he may be fooling Republicans, but he's not fooling anybody else. And to answer Sam Stein's question, there's a way to do this. Uh, There's a way to confront uh, Trump. And I think the, the best way to do it is the way Megyn Kelly did it in one of the Republican debates. She played clips of uh, Trump saying that he supported the Iraq war. She played clips of Trump saying uh, that he was against the Iraq war. Uh, she played clips of him saying he was pro-choice. Uh, and then clips of saying he was against abortion. Uh you know show the inconsistencies because that will, is what bother, will bother voters is this man obviously does not have a a principle uh, in his body, and he 'll say whatever he thinks is convenient at the time that will get him the most votes uh, but uh, Republican uh, voters may be blissfully ignorant, uh, but the other the rest of America isn 't
1: now speaking of Bernie Sanders this is one issue obviously you know if we're talking specifically about that issue if he was facing Trump he would be able to to tout that issue uh, saying he was against it from the start one area of strength that he has against Hillary Clinton um, I think we you know that is something where if he was the candidate I don't think Democrats would have that vulnerability um, uh, as you said Brad it doesn't look like that's going to be the case with the way that the race is shaping up some have called for Senator Sanders to drop out both you and I spoke earlier about the fact that you know we think there's value in him staying in um actually leslie uh was on the o'reilly factor last night and she said that she thinks senator sanders uh should drop out um as she's a big hillary supporter and she, she thinks it'll unify the party more so um reggie from georgia wanted to weigh in on that reggie go ahead with your thoughts
0: happy hump day to you and brad mark yeah i would just like to hey reggie up. how you doing brad yeah I was, I, was, I was just about to bring it up mark that she was on the o'reilly factor last night saying that Bernie Sanders should drop out of the presidential race. I would just like to know how you, Andrew, and Brad feel about that. Since you and Andrew are both Bernie Sanders supporters, do you think he should drop out or he should fight to the to the very end? You well, should stay in and fight to the very end through thick and thin and all that stuff.
1: My thought on that, Reggie, and thanks for the question, it, it, which to recap, if you didn't hear earlier, Brad, I agree with. I think that... Senator Sanders should stay in because he can affect the party platform in July and make it more progressive uh, and basically, you know, push Hillary to the left on issues where would put her in line with more of the Democratic Party, like the $15 minimum wage, like uh, affordable college, like reforming the primary elections, uh, getting money out of politics, uh, a number of issues that I think he is, you know, for banning fracking i mean uh, so many different issues that brad has brought up so i think it will actually help the democratic party i also think it helps hillary stay sharp i do think that after the june 7th series of primaries specifically california that they need to come together whether that means they're technically still running against one another but um you know they start to unify behind the scenes you know i don't know exactly how that will work um i do think that there's some positives that if he did drop out sooner you know you could you could work on unifying the party a little bit sooner but I think honestly that having a stronger party platform will be more valuable than that additional time and you don't have the viciousness on the Democratic side especially after Senator Sanders uh, loss in New York things really quieted down you had the peak of it before New York where they were going at each other where you saw the Republicans still ravaging each other I I just don't think you have the negatives on the Democratic side of them uh, still going and it it keeps you know uh, attention on the race whereas now you're just going to be seeing Trump rallies. They don't have any more elections to really look forward to, and you're going to have the, quote-unquote, coverage of the horse race on the Democratic side, which is going to get them uh, media attention. And I think they're both going to be attacking Trump versus attacking each other, so it's going to be two-on-one in a certain certain sense. Uh, Would you agree with that, Brad?
2: Uh, Yeah, and, you know, remember here that... uh, you know, I agree with you. I think Bernie Sanders has really toned down his rhetoric, anti-Clinton rhetoric uh since New York. Uh and uh you know, I you know, I don't think it really does Hillary Clinton any damage that he's staying in um as long as he doesn't beat the crap out of her, which he was doing uh during the campaign in New York. Um but I don't think he's going to do that anymore. I mean, look at the math. Last Tuesday uh, Bernie Sanders says he was staying in the race not to win the nomination, but he said he was staying in the race to influence the party platform. Last week, uh, he, he fired two or three hundred staffers He said he didn 't need anymore uh, because he was focusing on California. Well, guess what? He does need those staffers because if he hopes to be them, if he wanted to be the nominee, they should be working on the general election right now. Uh, Hillary Clinton has hundreds of staffers working in places like Ohio and Florida now, even though they have their primaries uh, because they 're going to be key states in November. Uh, so I disagree with Senator Sanders' argument that he doesn't need them. Uh, he does. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, the other thing is uh, there was a precipitous drop uh, in Bernie Sanders' uh, fundraising last month. Uh, so I think one of the considerations he's going to have to deal with is, is money. Uh, California is an incredibly expensive media market. Uh, and uh, his fundraising is now hurting. It went down $20 million in one month. Uh, So he's going to have to figure out if he can run a full-fledged media campaign in California because he has less money to do it and the Los Angeles media market is Incredibly expensive, so it's going to be tough.
1: So, I think you know what you're saying, Brad, is he's indicating that you know he's softening his tone with, and he said his goal is to influence the party platform. So, I think you and I are in agreement on that. Going into break, I want to leave you with a question, Brad, to think about, and our our callers are welcome to do so as well. Um, How does Hillary stress her experience, which will be A positive one compared to Trump on issues like foreign policy, you know, and keeping Americans safe versus, as she called Trump today, a loose cannon. But while still dealing with the fact that 2016 seems to be the anti establishment election, we'll get Brad's thoughts on that after this commercial break. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. One more segment if you would like to join us, the number to do so is 888 6 Leslie. That's 888 653 7543. Again, check out Brad on Twitter at Brad Bannon. You can follow me, Mark Grimaldi. My handle is at Mark J. Grimaldi. That's G R I M A L D I. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Ramaldi in for Leslie Marshall. This will be our last segment of the day. I am joined again by a good friend of the show and Democratic political strategist, Brad Bannon. Brad, so before the break, just to recap for those who are listening, uh, the question I wanted to get your thoughts on is how does Hillary stress her experience, which will be a positive one compared to Trump on issues like foreign policy, while still dealing with the fact that 2016 seems to be the anti-establishment election?
2: Well, I think the uh, biggest advantage Trump will have uh, is the fact that large numbers of Americans are angry about the direction of the country, and that's Trump's base, Uh, and he will apply to play that as much as he can. Now, in terms of Hillary, it's always interesting uh, watching, uh, when they ask in the national polls detailed questions what they like and dislike about candidates. Uh, Hillary's biggest problem um, is that there are large numbers of Americans who have doubt um, about her integrity. Uh, The problem is even larger, more uh, voters uh, have doubts about Donald Trump's integrity. And on the flip side, even a lot of people who don't like Hillary Clinton, when you ask them if she has the strength and experience to lead the country, uh, she knocks the ball out of the park. She goes up into the 60% range. So that's why she was talking about foreign policy today, uh, because I think that is an incredibly uh, big liability for Trump. You know, and I've said this, I think I've said this before on the show, uh, but in Trump, Americans know it's a bad world out there. And what they want is some reassurance that the person making foreign policy decisions has a steady hand uh, and is not going to push uh, the red button because um, he had a bad uh, cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, and that's Trump's biggest liability. And he'll play the foreign policy card to the hilt because even voters that don't like her think she's adept at handling foreign policy. And, they don't trust trump on that issue
1: brett how i mean to take a step back how can a candidate like trump who seems so just unintelligent unprepared and hateful win the nomination of one of the two major parties in america i mean it's stunning if you really step back and look at it
2: well yeah it is stunning it really is uh and i think what it's you know I think what trump 's nomination says more than anything else uh, is that uh, the Republican party uh, he was able to do this uh, because the Republican Party was on his deathbed uh, he 's like a virus if somebody 's already sick, uh, the virus is going to make him sicker and I think that 's what happened to the Republican Party. The Republican Party has lost the popular vote in five of the six last six presidential elections uh, and the reality reality is the Republicans, you know, even if they had a good candidate, let's say John Kasich, they would have a tough time uh, winning because they don't understand Republicans, the Republican Party is hurting not because of Donald Trump, but because the Republicans don't understand one fundamental fact that this nation is changing. Uh, they have the Republicans have always uh, skated because they know they could count on a big lot of support from white voters. Well, the problem is there are less and less white voters voting every year, and more and more Latinos. And the Republicans don't get that. Uh, and what happens if parties don't adapt to changing circumstances? They die. Uh, and I think th- the reason Trump was able to take the nomination was because the Republican Party was already uh, in its sickbed, and Trump's just finishing finishing them off.
1: How do you see the Republican Party moving forward if Trump does not win, Brad?
2: Well, uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, they've got to—you know, there's one reality— The Republican Party has to deal with if they're ever going to be successful in a presidential election ever again. They have to find a way to appeal to non-white voters, because every four years there are going to be more and more non-white voters and fewer white voters in the voting pool. And they're going to have to find a way to do that, and you know, doing what Donald Trump does, which is you know basically racist rhetoric, is making it worse for the Republican Party. And they're going to have to move on from that if they're going to be uh, successful because they can't, you can't win a presidential election, and uh, John McCain and Mitt Romney both got. large chunk of the white vote but it didn't do them any good and a lot of republicans still haven't figured that out and until they do they'll continue to go downhill
1: Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. I'd like everyone to uh, check out Brad's work. You can uh, check him out on Twitter and follow him like I do. Uh, his handle is at Brad Bannon. That's B-R-A-D-B-A-N-N-O-N. Check out his website, which is BannonCR.com. Uh, my name is Mark Grimaldi. Leslie's a ge- executive producer. I appreciate you joining us today. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Mark J Grimaldi. That's G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I.